Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the Personality Psychology Podcast. This episode was live recorded during the 2021 EAPP Day. We will start by quickly introducing ourselves and tell you a little bit about our podcast before we introduce our panelists and dive into today's discussion. I'm Rene. I am teaching and doing research in Scotland at the University of Edinburgh. And I would introduce my interests most broadly possibly. Uh, I would say that I'm interested in the causes and consequences of individual differences. And I'm also currently the editor of the European Journal of Personality. I'm Lisanne Lenamore, and I'm involved with the podcast as a research communications editor at EGP. I'm in the fourth year of my PhD at Utrecht University, where I study identity, psychopathology, and their interplay in adolescence and young adulthood. Hi, I'm Rebecca Weidman. I'm involved in the podcast as an early career representative of the European Association of Personality Psychology, and currently I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Michigan State University in the United States. And I study personality traits, subjective well-being, and health in the context of social relationships. This podcast is a collaboration between the EAPP and EJP, and it is sponsored by the EAPP. And we want to thank the EAPP again for their financial support. Without it, it wouldn't be possible. And the podcast features various personality researches in monthly episodes that include one-on-one interviews and discussions with a group of researchers. So it is important for us to invite scholars from different academic career stages who study different topics and who study those around the world. Yes, to give some more background about the podcast, I think it must have been the end of last year where we completely independently at EJP, uh, Lisanna and me on the one hand and Rebecca on the other hand independently came to this idea that we should have a personality psychology podcast and then it was a natural thing for us to team up and here we are now, we have been diligently airing one episode at the end of every month uh, throughout 2021, and we will plan to do so for the foreseeable future. And it has been a very fun experience for all of us doing these interviews, and we hope that these podcast episodes are interesting for our audience as well, experienced researchers on the one hand, but also general public and the students who are, who are studying at universities. We hope that the podcast episodes can be used by them as well. Today we are very happy to be joined by a panel and in the panel we have Alexandria, Harak and Katuna and we invited researchers at different academic stages who have also experience with cultural research and perhaps who themselves come from places that may currently be somewhat less represented in the personality research community. And we did this because we want to gain some insights into how we can increase diversity and inclusiveness in personality research, not just in Europe, but in the whole world. We really want to be uh, an organization, uh, a, a community for the whole world, not just Europe. And we do believe that increasing diversity is important for the long-term future of our field. And it is a long-term goal that we have to work for over a long period of time that doesn't have immediate fruits necessarily. So it's a long commitment. But we do hope that our guests and here in the panel and other members uh, present can help us to explore ways of increasing diversity and inclusiveness in our field. To introduce the panel, we have Harak Voskarishan, who is a PhD student in Northwestern University. 
But before doing his PhD, uh, Harak was a student at the American University at Beirut and lived in Lebanon. Did I get this right? And is there something you would like to add, Harak? Thanks, Renee. Yes, you got that right. And perfect pronunciation. Before Northwestern, I also conducted some research on personality in the Levant region quite a while ago. So I'm familiar with cross-cultural research in that context. And then afterwards, I worked in several departments in Europe and the UK in research contexts. Thank you. Katuna Marskishvili is an associate professor at Tbilisi State University in Georgia. And you study creativity, personality traits, and emotional intelligence. And you, you do this in various countries around the world. Am I correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Thank you very much. And we're Alexandria West is a postdoctoral research associate at Duke University. Now, Alexandria is committed to advancing diversity sciences by studying multiculturalism at individual, relational, organizational, and societal levels. Is that correct? And yes, that's anything? correct. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> yes. Um, so my research focuses on um, anyone who negotiates more than one culture, so whether it's bicultural people or um, intercultural couples. I'm continuously expanding, trying to get more and more diverse samples. <laughs> All right. Now we have introduced our panelists. We will shortly uh, dive into our questions because we have prepared some questions to discuss with you today, uh, Alexandria Herak and Khatuna, uh, but we invite the audience also uh, to comment and uh, ask questions as well. And if someone in the audience wants to add a comment or ask an additional question, they can do so in two ways. Uh, if you prefer not to speak up during the discussion, you can post your question or your comment in the chat, and then we will read the comment or uh, post out loud to the panelists for you. You can also raise your virtual hand if you want to contribute to the discussion, and then Renee, Rebecca, or I will give you the word as soon as possible. We, we hope that this contributes to a lively discussion. So with that being said, let's just dive into the questions. So to start off, maybe we can discuss a more general question. So what are the many ways that you see in which researchers can bring more diversity into their research? And we broadly define diversity as published research that represents a range of different topics or also different samples from around the world or conducted by researchers that have a different cultural background. I think that to bring more diversity into the research is not that simple. We know that and we admit that. And I think that questions should be addressed on different levels, at the level of even project implementation, research project implementation, or at the level of research planning, or, or at the public publication level. And one of the main many ways I would think that I would say that there is, for example, the explicit focus on joint research projects, finding collaborators everywhere where it's possible. And this is too beneficial to tell too beneficial. It can have like uh, then we have multicultural research team who is working on the same topic. And I think diversity is truly beneficial for the teams because when you are working in multicultural teams, then you are 
somehow seeing the same topics from different perspectives. And of course, uh, the, the benefit will be that we can cover different uh, different samples too, because we see that psychology last year is, are more focused somehow on the samples who are in terms of Maslow hierarchy on the high level of that hierarchy. And when we have around the world, lots of countries where still the meat of basic needs still is the case. And, and I don't think that psychology is like only people for, for high level needs, so to speak, and psychology should address the topics which are dealing more basic needs too. And also I think even within weird countries, we have this kind of problem that even within weird countries, so-called weird countries, we have samples who still represent kind of weird populations and we don't address kind of simple people and we don't, have them like as a, our research participant. And also I think that there can, will be lots of cultural differences for, uh, too, for example, even in terms of personality traits, are the same personality traits responsible for career success, for example, in not so, so democratic societies where the corruption level is still so high and where elections are still faked. I, I don't think so. Maybe we have still so many differences. So I think uh, the main focus if we explicitly focus on joint projects and we try to have lots of collaborators in our research project and we have those benefits so that's that's one of the main many ways how we can have more diversity in our research yeah just to hop in on that katuna i completely agree with you i think that the key to increasing diversity within our field is to increase the diversity of the scientists doing the research and i think that that start that starts very early i think that what you see in throughout academia not just just for us is that you get more and more of a homogenization of people from different particular cultures from particular social economic statuses from yeah not first generation college students but people who have you know legacy exposure to academia and to these systems and you get that homogeneity happening like at the undergrad level like as the one and then next to grad school and then next as you go up through early career and then into professorship and I think that um, we need to very actively think about what are the ways that each level is excluding like like who are who are we losing at each level and try and take that that approach so whether it's like right at that undergrad level getting people getting students junior students involved in research involved in labs feeling validated that their their thoughts their ideas about research they're probably coming from a different perspective as their own backgrounds are are diverse and um just encouraging that, bringing that into the lab and trying to really help people through. I, I completely agree with Alexandra. And I would say that from an international student perspective, I think what happens is when you go to the West to do your graduate studies, that homogeneity affects you as well. So it's important not to lose your observations, ideas, the thoughts you come with into the field from the culture you live in or have experience with. I think that would also bring in diversity into our fields. One of the messages I got from you is that we should have more joint research projects that encompass different cultures. And this is very much in line with what the way we are thinking currently at the European Journal of Personality, for example. Uh, we really would like to encourage more cross-cultural collaborations for two reasons, really. One of them is that 
for some phenomena, we do really expect there to be meaningful cross-cultural differences, and then we want to observe them. But also for another reason that sometimes we don't expect these differences and we expect things to be universal. But then we have to show these as well, that they actually are universals across cultures. But how could we actually achieve this practically? How could we, how could we get these large cross-cultural collaborations off the ground? I think you are the representative of the journal, and I think journals are so influential in that sense. If you explicitly like prioritize this such kind of research to publish, then I think that researchers will be motivated to to find collaborators around the world. I, I think that will be too high motivation for them to search someone and to do cross-cultural or multicultural or different kind of intercultural research. And I also think as a journal that if we speak about those countries who are not really well represented in personal psychology or in psychology literature as well, I think as a journal, what one can really do is maybe, maybe you have more agreements with with, uh, with different universities and make your journal more freely accessible for them because there are lots of illegal ways to have access to the articles in those countries, but I'm sure that's much nicer way to have the access. And this will give you a chance somehow to broaden your audience, I think, and to get those people also interested in your journal. I think explicit focus, if you do like the explicit focus on those joint projects, then this will be the motivation for researchers to find collaborations around the world. I think so, that that will definitely help. And I think as a European Association for Personal Psychology, the association is like regularly hosting the conferences and these conferences must be also available for everyone. When the conference fee, I think, of course, it's available. I don't mean that, but conference fees, for example, can be different for low income countries and for high for countries from high income, high income countries so i think that makes a difference when when the conference fees are different then different people can come not only someone from Europe or from United States, but someone from from the East part of the world. So that also will be helpful. And that's why people can meet, scientists can meet, and then they can set up some kind of collaborations. And then that's really a good way to meet your colleagues. Uh, Of course, nowadays we just meet each other in online, but (laughs) I hope there will be the real meeting time. So I think that will be more realistic ways somehow how we can encourage joint projects or cross-cultural research. So I think we need to be a bit more critical about what we mean by collaborations. So uh, I've been a part of projects, for example, where uh, it's mostly uh, researchers from the West, okay, who are trying to collect data from the global South. And the, what, what is asked for from researchers from the countries of the global South is merely data collection. So it's not that meaningful of a collaboration when it's only data collection. I think we should think of ways to make it more meaningful. So to make the research not just, you know, in the global south or whatever country, you know, is targeted, but to also make it of the south or for the south. So that includes, for example, um, small things like translating to the local language or considering that certain constructs may not present themselves in that context, you know. so 
to make the collaborations a bit more meaningful and not just you know top down from from west to um, the south. I think this is an excellent point. I, I definitely think that um, there's differential access, of course, to international samples. Like, like I, I try and get around my restriction to the uh, to North America by using Prolific to recruit international samples. But again, even when you're recruiting on the internet, you're going to face barriers that you're still going to be recruiting only from a certain socioeconomic status. Who are actually using these? If you look at the demographics, they're um, you know they're primarily white as well. And so I think that um, yeah. You make a very good point, Prague. I think that at the journal level, but also as these collaborations, we have to be mindful of the ways that we're implicitly perpetuating a Western-centric model of our field, um, a Western and a white-centric model. I think that like it's you see that really come through. It's starting to get better, but you do traditionally see it come through in that the type of research that we might do with cultural differences or even multiculturalism within individual psychology are often you know relegated to special issues or the non-mainstream types of journals. And Every time we do that, we reinforce the message that um, psychology is white and Western, and we're only interested in the other people if they differ in some interesting way to us. <laughs> um, so, like in terms of decentralizing that, and I think that um, these types of collaborations that are more equivalent of the the power level and the input across different uh, different collaborators internationally would help a great deal. Um, I have seen certain specific areas, like for instance, relationship psychology in North America has done a good job recently of creating databases. So researchers who have these larger kind of studies where maybe we've collected many variables and it's longitudinal, or we have very large international samples, they're starting to create like these good um, data repositories where you would have everything described about your data. But that also invites that a collaborator, anyone internationally can log on, see what you have in your study. And then if they have different thoughts and things that like are, are ideas that you might not have, they can contact you and like set up that collaboration. So that's all, also another way to invert who's collecting the data versus who's coming up with the ideas and doing the writing and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I do agree as well. And we definitely do not want to impose something and, 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 and impose all the research strategy from outside. But now, if we accept that, it becomes the question of who takes the initiative, uh, where does the initiative comes, come from? And the initiative in this case has to come not from those already well-represented researchers and groups but it has to come from somewhere else. But how to actually achieve that initiative? The circumstance that I'm talking about with that um, relationships, I think it's called like the Love Consortium. Their group has research funds, like small grants available targeted towards students or early career researchers to go into those data sets and find interesting things. So that's something that I think international organizations could set up. Like, you know, you know of course, if you're working with online data that's easily collaborated and, and collaborated and shared with, it costs are relatively low when the data is already collected. So that's something that I think that especially junior researchers from diverse backgrounds and from um, uh, inter these international places can just be made aware that this data exists out there and also that that same place that's offering the data is also incentivizing you to come up with research ideas, propose them, and then get, you know, these small grants that could help you can complete the research. For anyone interested, uh, Joanne just posted the link to the Love Consortium. One question that Steve's bring to my mind was that has COVID somehow accidentally helped us? Do you think, or has it made things more 
complicated. I'll jump in on that. I, I think that the silver lining that the beautiful thing about COVID that we've stumbled into as much as everyone is completely sick of Zoom, it did offer a chance of this kind of like equalizing of the playing field. I think not only that people from different countries can attend um, virtually, but I also find that um, different practices within the conferences can help break down barriers um, like of, in terms of like the hierarchy of like, some people are a little bit bolder to try and maybe, you know, talk to Veronica or, or something like on, on, on the call, then they might not be in person um, uh, at a conference. So I think that maintaining virtual components to conferences leading up to the conference perhaps um, would, would be some, some way Way of uh, of bringing in yeah making it more inclusive. Are there any other ideas of how we could encourage researchers, uh, young and more experienced in less currently represented countries, to come forward with initiatives? Uh, I don't know if this applies to more experienced junior researchers, but I had a thought where where I saw this recently in a different field. So it was this collaboration done between a Western university in the U.S. and a university in Lebanon, actually my university, American University of Beirut, where the university in the, in the U.S. was recruiting students from Lebanon to gain research experience with that university in the U.S. So if you know Lebanon, Lebanon is currently going through an economic crisis, a very severe one where there aren't many resources to support research in general, and there's not that much of a developed infrastructure for research in Lebanon. Uh, you know, these small bridges would help up-and-coming researchers from underrepresented region, regions to have a way into the field and, uh, you know, get into graduate programs and hopefully promote more diversity. One question I might also have is about, I think social media definitely is an important factor these days. And this, this is the channel through which information flows how do you think we could be more present in social media in less represented regions, communities? What would be the realistic channels we could try to uh, explore to, to gain that greater presence? I think that the potentially one of the challenges with so social media is just that it, it's inherently a young person's game. <laughs> It's just it's changing so it's it changes so rapidly. I think that that for organizations like ours is just that you know whether you're on Instagram and everybody else is on TikTok or you're on TikTok and you're catching up. There there is one aspect of that. It's very easy to lose touch. It's very easy to lose access to who you're trying to reach through social media, younger group or like a more diverse group. And I think that that really can only be overcome um, by having the input of people who are like earlier in, in there be creating opportunities. A lot of, for, for instance, this is a good, a, a good place where students internationally can be involved. You don't, you don't, you know, you don't, you don't need to be sitting in the U S or whatnot to be engaging in the social media and to be getting like different messages out there, reaching each other. So I think just involving younger people is kind of a, a key here. <laughs> I'm thinking about the journal here, and I've seen some journals, for example, have video abstracts. So there would be a link with, uh, you know, the article that leads to the video abstract. Of course, this needs some creative resources from the journal, I guess, but that could be a way to make the content more accessible. I just want to point out that Anno also said in the chat that different countries tend to prefer different platforms. It might also be important to work via different platforms. But I think one one issue um, that I also as a communications person 
mainly see is that the, the issue with social media is that you sort of shout in the vacuum that you create. So you never get past the vacuum that you have unless someone else uh, is very kind in sharing it with, with the next vacuum, basically. So we're always shouting in the same vacuum because we don't we don't get to the other parts of the, the space out there, basically. Um, so I, I'm not sure if you have any ideas about what would be good ways to increase that place that we shout into or other ways in which we can reach new areas that we basically just haven't haven't reached yet. Well, I think one thing is that the social media provides a very nice complement and a way to increase engagement internationally before and after conferences, especially like uh, like with something like this. So it is a opportunity that if you create more of a social media for, for instance, like our group, that is a professional network, that is something that can continue to expand and expand with that has kind of a core. And so this is, you know, these last couple of years with virtual conferences, again, the nice thing is that we might be getting people who don't normally get a chance to attend conferences. And then once they're here, I think it's important to always be letting people know about these networks that exist how do like how to get in contact with everybody else and stay in that loop and then i think you'll get a little bit more of a natural spread through uh to to atypical um people through those channels yeah that's a great idea thank you because most of the universities nowadays they have a facebook page or or a different platform page and uh, so to reach out those universities and that they share this information with their academic personnel and with students. I think that increases the audience as well. So you mean we proactively reaching out to as many universities in different places as possible and- well, Why not, if, yeah. Especially those ones who are not like, really we don't know that they are not involved in the society activities or something. Why, why not proactively reach out to those universities and when something is shared by the universities, universities still are representing authoritarian communities and, and people trust those source and then that's when they also can share this information and this news from your web page. All these communication strategies are yet another way that we have to be mindful of when we're still westernizing, <laughs> like when we're still making something western centric in terms of um, which platforms. So that was a, a great point that if platforms differ internationally, then this is just another way that I think like it will grow on itself. If we if we you make a purposeful attempt to get people involved internationally, that will introduce these different perspectives, different knowledge that we don't have about you know these uh, differences. In in different countries and like that that will help us continue to grow I, I think a really good point got brought up there's implicit messages for instance the fact that we will only share this information in English you know there needs to be more space for to acknowledge the fact that people have different languages and like make space for whatever culture whatever perspective that they're bringing in as well so Herak you talked about students that come like internationally and are and maybe undergrad students or grad students, like how can I, as a teacher or as a mentor, include them more and encourage their ideas? You know, for me, relationships have always mattered to build a one-on-one -on -one relationship with the student and um, to be open to their ideas, to be open to ways they think, to be open to their interests. Uh, so relationship building, I think, with such students really helps bring to the fore their talent and what they could bring to the field. 
I also see that in the chat, uh, Veronica also shared that uh, there are newly appointed EAPP regional advocates uh, that can be helpful in uh, creating meaningful collaborative efforts. So this might also be something that if if there are researchers uh, who are interested in, in, in starting up collaborations that they also might be uh, considering working with these regional advocates. I guess we will have to make sure that this information will be publicly available to both those from already uh, well-established research communities who would like to reach out to less well-established communities and the other way around as well, that the, these regional representatives can be the bridge in multiple ways. Is that how it's going to be, Veronica? The final roster is not ready, but it's almost ready. And then we have to meet with them to kind of create those relationships with them so that they, you know, they meet each other and they meet, uh, you know, the ones who don't know me and don't know Anu and don't know the association as well. And once that's ready, they're appointed to start January next year. So uh, um, we will, I, th I think it's a matter of weeks, maybe a month or two before we make it, you know, available and put it on the website and everything. So cross-cultural collaborations are highly encouraged. We have to make sure that they are not westernizing even more the research culture but there in what the key things we have to make sure we have in place is how the information flows uh, and for example these regional representatives could be one bridge there or reaching out to universities as katuna suggested and building collaborations this way is another uh, solution we have here but what really could also help if we had some financial tools instruments available that could facilitate these projects is that a fair summary of what we have discussed so far? I think that's pretty fair. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, incidentally, COVID might have helped this here because we now have communication practices we didn't have before. And we might have imagined before that to get something off the ground, we really have to fly somewhere and have a run an expensive meeting and dinners and all the things. But now we realize, hey, we don't because here we are at the moment running this session and having this discussion without this really costing a whole lot of money at all. Yeah, I, I think that that brings up a great point that sometimes what we need to do to expand and diversify isn't that difficult. It's something freely available to each of us. I'm thinking just even like in terms of the world of social media, how often do you have those kind of like follow back Fridays and like, you know, it's just like, like add somebody who you know, who's international. And so, you know, for me, I may not already have a network of international collaborators, but if you were to ask me to say, do you know five people who are like, you know, outside outside of weird countries in the global south or in, in, in different um, in different organizations and to just actively be like, hey, those five people, here's here's information about our organization. Here's what we're doing. And would you like to like give them a chance to be linked up to our professional network and, um, you know, just harness the ability of networks and especially virtually to spread on, on their own? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Do we have any more ideas about how to increase the diversity and inclusiveness in research? Yeah, I, I really like Joanne's idea that's in here in terms of uh, something parallel to the Freeform Fridays. Um, that was something that I kind of stumbled across uh, this last summer for uh, IACCP, for, so for the cross-cultural, I just kind of noticed that the virtual environment and the Whova platform, especially if you're using, there, there are... Um, some really successful 
impromptu organic kind of like panel discussions that can that can come together so when, when you have people in the same place you have a topic that's that, that you're able to throw out it's very like it's a much easier these days to say hey do you want to just jump into this other room tomorrow and we're going to discuss cultural appropriation we're going to get this international perspective anyone who's interested in can attend um but uh, yeah again so i i guess i'm just saying like harnessing that that virtual environment um harnessing the fact that people are a little bit uh, maybe a little bit bolder to engage like you know through through online whereas in, in person in a conference let alone the barrier of getting people physically together um it's also kind of like uh, yeah equalizing that pe playing field so that people actually do get those ex exposures personality science might be quite uniquely positioned the, among the other fields of psychology for doing cross-cultural work because for a lot of things that we do we don't need an ex expensive equipment. We didn't, don't need an fMRI scanner or a DNA, DNA sequencing or something like that would necessarily be prohibitively expensive in many circumstances. Often we need, we need, we need online tools that are completely uh, implementable online. I wanted to ask also what other aspects are of diversity beyond focusing on like cultural and country aspects that you see in our field or in related fields that we should really strengthen and focus on. I mentioned this earlier, but I think it's important to consider, yeah, the the different categories in which with it with each level of academia we end up selecting for and like end up end up creating more and more of this homogeneity. I think one of the most important things that we can do is really right when we first get, you know, our those minds in the classrooms at that undergrad level, start sharing information about research, about the research projects, about getting involved in labs. This is information that we know that people who are not first generation college students, but who have parents or family who are familiar with the education system or academia or how any of this is done, that information is, is available to those students much much sooner. Whereas you see people who are of the different socioeconomic statuses or for whatever reason are less represented groups, they don't know to do things like be talking directly to professors, be joining labs and getting research experience. They don't know the little tricks of like, oh, well, grad students are a great backdoor to get into labs. You know, if, if your professor doesn't have a lot of time, there's probably a stressed out grad student you can you can you can find who might want some help with some of some of their tasks. These types of informations, I think that it's just important to be offering workshops to to do a lot of outreach, especially at, at those more junior stages so that we can we can help pull people up. I think these are very good points. There are these little tricks that we need to uh, educate, for example, that you need to um introduce yourself in your department as widely as possible, because then there will be somebody who will be able to write you references that you need for your next application in, in, in for a job or, or for education. And I also think we should talk more to people who are not first-generation students, might not know what makes it difficult as a first-generation student and vice versa. Maybe we should just ask our collaborators, maybe if like, hey, how was it as a first-generation student? What would have helped you? And then incorporating this more in our work. I think there are a lot of things that we just don't know because we're used to the way that whatever it is, Western academic background and maybe high socioeconomic background um, that we don't really are like aware of that it might be different for some islands. Anu also said how to reach underrepresented uh, groups in different countries. Most sociological surveys with a representative sample struggle with this too. 
Yeah, just adding on to this, I think this is an excellent point because even oftentimes when we applaud ourselves for getting diverse sample, then we have the people from diverse countries who are all highly educated and who are basically as similar to uh, the people that we would include in our non-diverse samples anyway. So I, I think this is a really good question. Do you guys have any ideas about how to get to these? I, I think someone today, earlier today, named them the normal people. So how do we get to these normal people uh, outside of academia? I think if we just are motivated to find them, then there is always the way to find them. And I also, again, I'm repeating myself, but still like bringing someone from different culture can bring different diversity and different ideas about samples who can be like the simples or who can they be at all, like not educated from low social status. For example, just for example, in my country, we have so-called IDPs, internally displaced people. And who are really interesting, they are like refugees in their own country and uh, they are different than refugees because they are not really refugees, but they are from their homes because of Russian occupation. So I think that when you have different people, then the, the, those different people or diverse people bring diverse samples with them. And, and just to have an idea who they can be, like simple people, ordinary people, internally displaced people, or refugees, or, or some minorities, or someone, we just sometimes don't even think because this variety is so big that one can't even simply not think about that. And when you have different people, then people can have ideas. Well, maybe that's interesting to investigate those, I don't know, personality traits on this sample of these people. Then I think that helps a lot. You see the things from different perspectives and you find those simple people, not someone from higher education or someone from high social status families or, or someone who is already well represented in psychological science literature. Can I ask a provocative question now? What, what sure. happens if we actually do this research and we study a variety of different groups and we find that many things actually do meaningfully vary across different populations, be they culture, socioeconomic status, whatever characteristic. Wouldn't our science just become too complex for us to handle and get our own heads around? So we might open a Pandora box here and... But that's nice okay. that we have such a big knowledge and then, then we accept that people are different and there are so big varieties around. I don't think that it will be the opening of Pandora box. I think it truly enriched the psychological knowledge. It will not be like everything is like two multiply on two is always four. I think that will give us more power to us, to psychologists. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Katuna. I mean, we study people and people change. We study people within a social historical context, and that's always changing. So we should expect that much of what we are studying is going to vary. It's going to vary over time. It's going to vary over place. And reality doesn't care whether we can comprehend how complex it is. 
<laughs> so like if it gets complicated for us it's it's um it's just another challenge I think it's it's kind of thinking about like are we studying the river or are we studying the water like if you're studying something that's constantly always in flow you're only ever going to just be getting snapshots of it at different times but it's to get the overall kind of picture of what is that what does that mean about humans it takes a lot of pieces of the puzzle I think as Katuna was saying to really great get a, a better holistic picture but still what do we do if a journalist calls us up and asks us to explain some phenomena and all we really have to say is it depends it varies across culture it varies across this or that characteristic and, and we can't give that simple answer that the public is expecting us to give what do we do i think we will find a way to answer them we can at least classify in this kind of culture, it's like that. And in that kind of culture is like that. I think we will find a way to answer them. I also think that this is an extremely important, if we're engaging in science communication in the classroom, outside of the classroom, like you're saying, a journalist is talking to you, that what we do is descriptive, not prescriptive. And so when we are talking about, if we're even trying to explain a cultural difference, we're explaining something that just exists out there, not this is the way it should be, because I think that that message can very easily kind of slip in, especially in our teaching when, for instance, if we're, we're talking about, um, if I bring the relationship research as an example, you're talking about attachment differences across different countries in the world, these messages quickly become like, this is the way that this group is supposed to behave rather than this is just, an, uh, this is just a difference that we're observing right now. It's not, it's not uh, laden with a value of it should be or it shouldn't be. Thanks. So I think we only have three more minutes. Is there anything that we haven't covered? Maybe to, to add on a very positive note, I really like Joanne's suggestion and the discussion that followed in the chat that basically said, well, maybe the outcome of diversifying the groups that we study and the, 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 the puzzle pieces that we find on personality will just get more people excited uh, on personality psychology. I think that's a really uh, nice way of looking at it. Thank you, everyone, for the interesting discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. And this is a great initiative with the podcast. And I think another way that we can very easily spread the word. <laughs>